0: will said earlier i am an intern here at st nick's but i've been attending the church for about four years so you will have seen me around before it's also slightly strange to be speaking from up here yeah so slightly unnerving um i am so excited to delve into the word of the lord with you and to bring you the second sermon from our current series where we are seeing and looking at jesus afresh will you pray with me before we begin Loving Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Amen. So in November of last year, I was lucky enough to attend a concert of one of my favourite artists in Newcastle. Uh, The staff will remember that I just went on about it endlessly for about weeks, uh, and I had a great time. Uh, I also wore the concert t-shirt to Little Stars so and then told every toddler about the concert obviously they didn't understand Um, any of you in the room who have been to a concert will understand what i mean when i talk about the concert feeling it is a social phenomenon at concerts and performances that creates a certain experience and this is really really difficult to explain we can say there's a certain energy power or atmosphere that most people will experience But that doesn't accurately describe the feeling. Some of you will know that before I joined the team here, I was finishing a music degree. So my natural inclination is to try and explain why the music makes you feel like that. I can talk about the parts of your brain that it lights up or the acoustic principles necessary for you to feel that feeling. But this doesn't accurately describe it either. It is something that surpasses the limitation of our language. And this is not a principle that's unfamiliar to us Christians. And when we talk about the principles of God, our language is so often clunky and imperfect. But we are so lucky that we have the witness of God in the world, and even our own personal encounters, to shape the basis of our relationship with him. And I think this is what this passage touches on so brilliantly. This passage is a story of an inexplicable encounter with Jesus. So we have joined Jesus right at the beginning of his ministry in John. In this passage, Jesus is gathering together his disciples who will travel with him to share the good news. Previously in the chapter, Jesus has recruited Andrew and Peter who were already disciples of John the Baptist. And today we will hear about two more call cool narratives, which are very different from one another. On one hand, we have Philip called by God, and on the other, we have Nathaniel called by his friend. This passage begins with Jesus leaving Galilee, where he meets Philip. The only thing John tells us about Philip is that he is from the same town as Andrew and Peter this means there may have been some overlap with the teachings of John the Baptist so he may have known something of Jesus already when Jesus invites Philip directly to join him with the words follow me Philip offers no resistance and expresses no doubt Jesus speaks two words and Philip was ready to receive If only it was that easy for us. If all we needed to say was follow me, we would have more volunteers. Church attendance across the country and the world wouldn't be declining, and evangelism would be simple. It would be easy, but of course, this is Jesus we're talking about, and clearly his powers of persuasion are much greater than mine. But as I mentioned above, this only tells half of the story. This is only the first of two very different call cool narratives that John mentions in this passage. So let's join Nathaniel's journey. Let's see how he comes to follow Jesus. This time, the invitation does not come directly from Jesus. It comes from Philip, and there is an urgency in what he says. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about, also, about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip is excited to share this good news. He cannot wait. Can you think of a time when you were so excited to, share some, to tell someone about something that interests you? You had to tell them straight away. I can remember a time in my life where I would tell anything that would sit still long enough about the intricacies of the law and world building in CS Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Prince Caspian is the best book in the series, by the way. Sharing is a very human tendency. It is part of our design. We share when we have good food or good coffee, when we found a new music artist or a new TV show. We love to share good things with others, and we want them to feel the same joy that we do about those things. It is relational. It is the way we form and maintain relationships. If you join university as a first year, the first thing they say when you move away to a new city is to join a society that lines up with your interests, whatever they may be. And there's often a wide range. A certain university's Hummer Society has nearly 120 members. You may feel there's a difference when it comes to sharing the gospel. Sharing our love of coffee or TV or music feels easier than sharing the gospel. I have definitely found this to be the case. Firstly, there are consequences. To accept the good news is to accept that we are sinful. It's not as easy as telling someone about a nice coffee place. And secondly, the more precious something is, the more frightening it can be to share. The fear of rejection grows. The worry that you made me view differently as a result can be overwhelming. There are many times in my life where I have wanted to share the good news with someone, but have decided against it for the fear of awkwardness, backlash, or judgment. Last week, It was the first Sunday of this sermon series, and at the 6.30 service, Hannah spoke to us about the cost of putting Jesus at the centre of our lives. This is an example of that cost. The worry about saying the wrong thing, the risk of rejection and of pain is real. The cost is real. The step that Philip took to invite Nathaniel is not easy and takes great courage. But for him, he was so excited to share about the appearance of the Messiah and the goodness of his news that it outweighed the personal risk. Philip knew that this good news is radical. This good news is life-changing. As he may have worried, the response from Nathaniel is not initially positive. Nathaniel retorts, Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? The situation may feel familiar. Have you ever felt that crushing feeling when you share something that you think is great with someone you love, and the response is unexpectedly negative or cynical? You may have even tried to share the good news of Christ and be met with similar resistance as Philip. It is possible that for some of us, the natural tendency here is to try and persuade people that they are wrong, But for others, this rejection may make it difficult to make recommendations again. This can be particularly disheartening if it is something you are really passionate about and can result in topics becoming too divisive to discuss in relationships, in families and in communities. These disagreements can manifest as friendly rivalries. Four years in Durham and I've not met a single Crystal Palace fan. But it can also challenge and complicate relationships. It's not a surprise when you go into someone's house to hear that politics or religion is banned at the family dinner table. We can offer statistics and articles and reviews to aid our argument, but sometimes it just falls on deaf ears and can be easily overwhelming for the person listening. Ultimately, some deeper work may need to take place for that person to understand where you're coming from for that side of the argument. I think this can happen when we, t- when we try and share the gospel. It is often so rare for some of us that we get the opening to talk about the great things that God has done in our lives and the amazing things that we have experienced, that we hit this person with the massive works of God. These may not seem that big to us because we hear about them every week. But the magnitude of these is massive. Jesus died for your sins and came back to life. God laid out a path for you before you were born. These are intangible and impossible things to get your head around. But we as Christians are used to that. We can acknowledge that. We understand there is a great mystery. We know we do not have the perfect language. So how does Philip do it? How does he get Nathanael, even in his criticisms and worries, to consider coming to see Jesus? Firstly, in his initial remarks, Philip speaks of things that are tangible, in language that Nathanael understands. We know from the passage that Nathanael was Jewish, as Jesus calls him Israelite. So he would have knowledge of the Old Testament. He would have understood the references to Moses, the law, and the prophets. And then Philip goes even simpler, with the briefest possible explanation of Jesus' ancestry, where he was born and who his human father was. That is it. And in response to Nathaniel's retort, Philip replies, Come and see. Come and see. There is no attempt at persuasion. This is an invitation. But crucially, this is not Nathanael's moment of revelation. This does not come from Philip as the messenger, but it comes from Jesus. When Nathanael goes with Philip, Jesus calls out as if he knows him. Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael's questioning continues and he responds with, how do you know me? Jesus' answer here, I admit, is slightly baffling. I saw you while you were still under the fig tree. And again, Nathanael's response is perhaps even more baffling as he immediately responds with, Rabbi, you are the son of God. Why has this line of Nathanael sitting under the fig tree persuaded him of Jesus. It explains nothing of Jesus' identity, his goodness, his love, or of any of the things that we know to be true about Jesus. Some preachers and scholars have surmised that Nathaniel may have been despairing or afraid under the fig tree. Jesus saw him at his most vulnerable moment. He was known and named by Jesus. And this very well may have been the case. But as I mentioned a few times, this passage offers very little detail. If you have read read John's gospel before, there's a chance this feels a little out of pace, or perhaps out of style for John. John, who is known for long and wordy descriptions and lavish detail, has chosen to leave this seemingly crucial detail out of Nathaniel's testimony. And this is what this is. This moment is Nathaniel's story of coming to faith. This detail being left out perhaps leaves us with more questions than answers, but highlights what I believe to be the centre of this passage. Jesus is in control. Philip didn't need statistics or articles or strategies because Jesus was there. Now, I understand that there's an irony here. I have spent several hours over the last two weeks buried in commentaries, watching and listening to sermons on this passage and chatting through it with my friends. During this process, the passage spoke to me in a deeper way than I expected, challenging me to see that while I attempt to write the best sermon that I could, my focus has shifted away from the profound witness in this passage to the worry about my own language. I was able to acknowledge how easy it is for our focus to shift from the work of Jesus to our own. Jesus was working in Nathanael before Philip even thought to invite him. Philip knew that he did not need to rely on his powers of persuasion because the work was already being done. Jesus did not need Philip to bring Nathanael to him. He already knew enough of Nathanael's character and purpose without Philip's intervention. But Jesus chose to call on the friend of Nathanael to support him. Jesus' response to Nathanael's rapid change is definitely slightly comical, but speaks to the truth of faith as a journey. Jesus says, you believe because I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. In other words, for now you've seen this small glimpse of hope, this small glimpse of love. But I will open your eyes to bigger and greater things. This passage is a passage of steps of faith, of testimony and of witness. I think the key here lies with Philip, And with Jesus, Philip leaves an open-ended invite, in words that Nathaniel can understand, to come and see Jesus. And Philip knows that he does not have to do more than that, because it is Jesus that does the deep work. No persuasion is needed because the goodness of God speaks for itself the witness of God speaks for itself. Jesus is in control. Jesus has the perfect words so that we don't have to. Sometimes all we need to say is come and see. Amen.